Hello, and welcome to a podcast we've entitled Resources for Dismantling Racism, the Gospel of Mark. My name is Joshua Daniel, and I'm an Episcopal priest at St. Columbus Church in Washington, D.C. This is an eight-week course. Um, The material of the course is a conversation and a lecture that I've had with people in a hybrid setting, both in person at St. Columbus and also on Zoom simultaneously. We're taking that and breaking it into two separate bits um, of the lecture portion and the question and answer portion, which will be released each week. Um, Each week we will look at a different chapter and kind of go verse by verse, but also look at the general themes and um, purposes that are happening in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We hope for a lively discussion. Would love to hear from you in email form, or if you can show up sometimes to the live discussion, um, that would be wonderful. So glad that you found us, and please enjoy. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence. Which, is, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind, and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Awesome. Thank you. So, uh, in seminary, there's often the, the worst criticism that you could get after you're giving a sermon was that your interpretation of scripture was not exegesis, but eisegesis. <laughs> this is how seminarians talk to one another, sadly, um, sometimes. Uh, the difference is, I, I mean, I don't know, but the uh, common wisdom was that the difference is that exegesis is when you interpret the text that's there. You're pulling from the text. Uh, you're getting whatever the text is, is, is saying. Um, eisegesis is projecting your own issues onto the text and, and kind of seeing the text as a mirror of yourself. Okay? Um, and I think, you know, basically it was actually code for like, I agree with you, you are do- therefore you're doing exegesis, or I disagree with you, uh, therefore you're doing eisegesis. What's really interesting here, in my mind, is that this story uh, that Jesus pulls um, from uh, the Holy Text uh, is a perfect example of Jesus doing eisegesis. (laughs) Um, This story about David, uh, one thing that is not in this story uh, in the Bible is that uh, David's companions were hungry. Jesus inserts that. Um, uh, maybe he just thought it was a, a uh, natural implication of why they would have done this. Um, but this is the first time that bread, the, the word bread is used in the Gospel of Mark. And the bread becomes um, both a locus of narrative, but also of... I, ideology in the Gospel of Mark. Um, But here's the first instance of it. 
couple things uh, to note is uh, what, well, this is a perfect example, I think, of, and I want to just uh, uh, stop the share real quick, of Jesus trying to pull back, pull back and say, yes, David broke the law, okay, um, but he had good reasons for it. Um, therefore, uh, uh, those good reasons supersede our own laws or whatever. So the way that he says it is, this, the Sabbath is not made for humankind, but humankind for the Sabbath. The Son of Man, the human one, is Lord, even of the Sabbath, namely the ultimate arbiter of what is most true. But just, just pause here um, uh, and, and sit with Jesus trying to pull back and get us to think kind of, I want to say more holistically about what is it that differentiates good rules um, for bad rules. I see on uh, chat. Um, hey, Gabby. Welcome. Um, Gabby says, the Sabbath wisdom reminds me of modern Day parallels with advanced technology. Advanced technology is made to enhance quality of life of uh, women, uh, of men and not women, um, being made to be slaves to technology. Very interesting. Um, yeah. Yes, I like that. Uh, so here's a question. What is the larger principle? Does anyone feel like they can uh, give a swing at what is the larger principle that Jesus is appealing to? Uh, in this text, I'll reshare so we can have it in front of us. Well, I'm coming from Chad Myers, but that hungry people have the right to food. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's great, Cindy. Or more broadly, uh, if I may, that that hu um, human humanity, humane needs trump legalism. Yeah. Yes, Patty, I love that. Um, so just before this passage, and this is in chapter two, um, there's that small little episode about someone coming to Jesus and saying, oh, no, that's not it. Uh, you know what? I don't even think I included it. Um, uh, but uh, someone comes to Jesus and they say, uh, the disciples are fasting and the Pharisees are fasting. Or John's disciples are fasting, the and the Pharisees are fasting. Why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus is like, when you know the bridegroom's with you, you don't fast, you party. Um, I think what's there's a connection here. Oh, Patty, well, you're shaking your head. Well, I think well the first thing is like very selfless, like okay, they're hungry, so they need to eat. And the second thing is like. Well, I'm the bridegroom, so I get to make the rules. <laughs> yeah. And I find that is a lot like, you know, Captain Kirk says, I'm the captain, 
So I get to make the rules now. Right. So yeah. So how do we? I mean, it's not just yeah. having heard, but it's like so many people feel that they're exceptional and they get to make the rules. So how do we distinguish between egotism and all you know wisdom? Oh, that's thank you, Patty. That is a perfect framing. Uh, what I, I the, the where I see the connection is that. Um, here you have a, Jesus is addressing a group of people who are voluntarily depriving themselves of food and thus creating hunger for themselves. Uh, and Jesus is saying, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> That's not the type of hunger um, that we get to like break rules for um, or not break rules for. But when we set up, here's where I think the larger, the larger issue is that Jesus is always bringing us back to. If the laws of a religious community or a society in general are set up to disproportionately harm people, those are not those are not real rules, right? You don't get to call those just. There is a larger concept of justice. Just because you like just because we pass a law does not make it just, right? This is like the Martin Luther King Jr. Um, um, epic lesson. And that is some rules are um, so uh, mendacious that uh, a holy person will not follow them, will, will put themselves against the law in order to preserve the larger thing, which in a Christian context or a religious context, we would say the holiness of God. I think that's kind of what's going on here with um, the Son of Man, the human one, is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and Patty, it would be easy. And this is, man, goodness. Can I, can I talk about something complicated for a second? Uh, that could get me into some trouble. <laughs> um, I, one thing that troubles me reading through the Gospel of Mark, shoot, I uh, don't feel comfortable, great about this. The way that the way that um, Tr Donald Trump and Jesus set the scene is so similar. So here's what I have in mind. Donald Trump, you know, if you ever listen to one of his speeches, it's the same freaking story every time. And it's a big, burly, masculine man comes to him weeping. Mr. Trump, um, we never believed that America could be great again. You've done it. I'm a ex-CIA officer, uh, Green Beret, but, but you've moved me to tears, right? Um, Jesus, the, the scene always gets set up that the person falls before Jesus, Jesus does something miraculous. Trump, one thing that Trump does, it just an amazing job at, is get to the heart of shame culture and, and his ability to um, uh, conquer, uh, uh, conquer it in a way. So, Patty, what I'm trying to get to is, first of all, okay, let me just pause there for a second. That's outrageous, I know. But 
Um, this 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 sense of like uh, people just falling before Jesus all the time in a way I I swear I it, it's something that I picked up on I don't know if anybody else did reading the Gospel of Mark but the way that people throw themselves in front of Jesus does could create this sense of like cultish um, yeah. w- uh, worship of a person in the I- idolatrous way, which I think Trump has mastered. I mean, it's just a master of creating himself as an idol. Uh, it, that's the comparison that I... Yeah, Sarah. Yeah. I think, I think, was it C.S. Lewis who kind of came up with that idea that Jesus was either like who he says he is or he's a madman or like a cult, like a yes. scam artist or something? Right, right, right. He was, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know how I feel about, uh, that, that sort of, uh, thesis, but yeah. I think sometimes, you know, like, you miss, it's like, yeah, like, if Jesus showed up today, I'd be like, oh my God, that guy's going to like start a death cult. Oh, <laughs> right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Yeah. So it's... Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. Some, like, yeah. kinda, sometimes you have to read it and be like, this is acceptable because Jesus is God. If Jesus weren't God, I feel like this would be really problematic. Yes. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Good. I, I, man, I'm, I'm so happy with where this is going. Yes, Elizabeth. Well, that, that falls into something that, that I have struggled with really my whole life. And I, I think it's because I was born into the evangelical tradition. Um, that's sort of how I have read about Jesus in the Bible. And yeah. It's only been much later in life when I realized that the words on the paper, at least as, as I read them, doesn't convey who he must have been in his personality. Uh. He must have been so warm mm. and gentle mm. but strong. But he, I mean, you know, people say he was charismatic. It may be obviously, I guess, whatever that means. But that whole arrogance that I, I mean, I pick that up in the text all the time. It's like this, this arrogance in Jesus and it turns me off. I don't like it. But I think that that has to be a misinterpretation to my ears because people didn't just follow him because he was doing healings. They were following him because they liked his message and he talked about coming to the little children and all he must have been a warm person and if i if i put that feeling or that belief that assessment of how it must have been to be you know a contemporary of jesus's then some of that arrogance and idolatry I give it permission to fall away because I'm not sure that that's how the people there saw him. Yeah. Am I, am I describing what I'm thinking? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, what it makes me think is that, uh, okay. 
So one thing that I grew up thinking, and again, I like to differentiate between what I was taught and how I heard it, <laughs> you know, no judgment, uh, because the people who taught me were really wonderful. Um, and, and, but I was like 16, you know, what are they going to do? But one, I mean, what, one thing that came through is if you just say the name of Jesus, right? If you just say the name of Jesus, you are in like, um, fully baptized, full, you know, and, and there, I, there's a part of that that's, that's good and um, interesting, but what Jesus, I think, is getting here to, or, um, is that it is very easy to turn Jesus himself into an idol. Mm -hmm. And that is what I think religious nationalism fundamentally is. And that is taking the form of religious belief, the outer garment, as itself um, incorruptible, unchallengeable, and absolutely holy. And what I'm trying to say uh, throughout this last three weeks is that it is that outer garment that Jesus is attacking, and it just happens to be Judaism, <laughs> what we would now call Judaism. Um, but it's nothing particular about Jesus is wanting them to go back to the true Torah, <laughs> uh, not the false one. Anyway, so Patty, kind of uh, getting getting back to this uh, thing about the cult of Jesus. As we will see later in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus pulls the disciples to him, what is the fundamental teaching? The first will be last and the last will be first. Um, if you want to lead, you must serve. Um, if you want to follow me, you've got to get rid of your material possessions uh, to the rich young ruler, for instance. And so Jesus, he is bringing people to him. Um, uh, but I want to say he's directing them to the true image of Jesus, uh, which is this selflessness, this... Um, uh, uh, radical uh, pursuit and trying to uh, fulfill the kingdom of God and where all, all people are, are treated with dignity. Yeah, David. Uh, I don't know if Joe was still hoping to talk or not. Oh. I, I didn't want to jump in front of him. Joe, is no? it? Okay, go. Very good. Okay, all right. Um, so I would just say that Personally, I think that one of the most compelling reasons to believe in Jesus was the combination that I have never seen in the history of the human race. And that was the arrogance, so to speak, of thinking you're God and the way he took on people and combined with the utter humility and love and willingness to wash people's feet is his disciples' feet. I, I don't think there's another example of somebody in, in, in history that had that sense of bravery, that had that sense of drive, that suggested with questions and careful words that he was literally God incarnate. He didn't, go, he didn't run around screaming it at the top of his lungs, but he was very clear about it in the end when people really realized what he was talking about. And then to see how humbled he was I just think that's a very compelling reason to, to yeah. believe in him because I, I just have never known another human 
historical figure. I've seen one side and the other, but never that combination. Yeah, that's really interesting, uh, David. It makes me want to. It makes me think um, about uh, putting you into the Gospel of Mark and wondering where you are on the path of discipleship. You know, I, as I do about myself. You know, um, uh, okay. So let me let me get through some of this, and then we can pull back for a discussion in just a second. So uh, here we have uh, Jesus uh, really beginning to focus in on um, uh, uh, kind of legal precedence or whatever the the culture of legalism versus true justice. Uh, okay, so I was just uh, so this is some of the the debt and purity stuff. Uh, that helped define what it meant to be sinful, um, which is like not paying your tithe and also just being like not in that uh, league. We listed out the, the levels of, um, of, uh, of significance, the different roles that people had. So like being deformed, for instance, would put you into the um, class of sinful people. Uh so I'm just kind of re, uh, okay. So Jesus was not alone in seeing this, uh, this religious system as being something that was problematic. Uh, uh, so there was several movements on how to, uh, how to address this because it was, because of, the, because of, um, how exclusionary this, the religious system in Palestine had become. Uh, so kind of one of the kind of historical, uh, uh, events here is that the, the synagogue system just comes to, to dominate Palestine. And at the, the center of the synagogue system is the Torah and the interpretation of the Torah, right? So these different groups, um, are all vying for a, uh, the right or most holy, uh, interpretation of the Torah. We've got three different, uh, oh, Joe, go ahead. I see your hand raised. Uh, break in whenever you get a chance, Joe, uh, if you like. So we've got, uh, three different responses to this strict religious code, uh, that was, uh, just creating, uh, tons of tension and, and had created a, uh, kind of irreconcilable, uh, religious class. One was the Pharisees, who we see most in the um, in the Gospels, and the Pharisees' response was piety for everybody. Okay, um, uh, we are going to put the Torah. Uh, it, it, we're going to be a part of the synagogue. We're invite everyone supposed to be uh, participate um, in the synagogue system, and therefore all people are bound by the law of the Torah. Um, and so everyone is responsible for knowing the law and for following the law. Um, uh, and the uh, modern day uh, Judaism has a bit of this. So like uh, the exceptions, ways of getting out of work on the Sabbath, for instance, I'm sure you all, I, I can't speak with any specificity about this, so I'm not going to, um, but, but there's a, there's a similar a similar analog there. Okay, another response to this, um, to the uh, uh, religious system, was the Sadducees. 
these are the, the kind of higher class of priests. And the basic thesis here is that holiness is only possible for the priests, right? Only if you are in the temple um, uh, performing the ritualistic acts are you able to follow um, all the, the kind of uh, uh, laws uh, for purity? Which meant, from the Sadducees' point of view, like the common person, you know, um, uh, holy, not holy, uh, they're not even a part of the system. Um, and so the Sadducees refused to recognize the legitimacy of the Pharisees, the oral tradition, um, which threatened their own kind of exclusive hegemony over the, their own um, uh, right to interpret the text. The third response is withdrawal, which is what the Essenes did in a, kind of a semi-monastic uh, community. Thankfully, uh, we're grateful for the Essenes because um, I'm pretty sure I got this right, that uh, it was a lot of these communities that uh, wrote out some of the texts that survived. Uh, from the first century. Um, uh, they rejected the classism of the Sadducees and the liberalism, liberal, liberalism of the Pharisees. Interestingly, and here like um, just a little bit of facts there, um, all three responses though, uh, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and um, the Essenes uh, fundamentally assume the, the purity code is non-negotiable. Right, um, and thus all three of them, even the Pharisees, assume the centrality of the temple for holiness. You are not a part of the um, uh, temple system, and you are not a part of the world of God. And this is what Jesus fundamentally rejects. He rejects um, uh, the the kind of the purity and debt system. Uh, and that the temple has to be central to the, uh, I, I don't have the right words here. My gloss would be to the life of God. What Jesus keeps, though, is the importance of the Torah. And thus, his um, uh, response, as we just saw with the story of David, is to say, um, have you never read the Bible? <laughs> Have you never read these uh, sacred stories? You're missing the true um, um, import of them, uh, which is that God extends God's hand to the poor in a salvific way. That is the measurement of God. Okay. So, chapter 3. Here we are, we are uh, coming in for uh, the first big climax. Jesus enters into the synagogue. So going back to the center, center heart of the, uh, the Jewish symbolic order. So it would be interesting. It would be a great thing if we could, if we had time to look at Jesus's first entrance into the synagogue and compare that to this, to this one. Um, notice right off the bat, they uh, watched him to see whether he would cure them on the Sabbath. So, uh, the stage setting here is that the Pharisees have heard of Jesus doing uh, healing people, relieving people of debts in private, um, and uh, and uh, of healing people, 
and they want to see, uh, they show up to see whether he's going to do it, right? Now, an interesting point about this, kind of just from a literary standpoint, Jesus is antagonistic here. He clearly could have healed this person not on the Sabbath and not in the synagogue as he healed so many other people. Jesus chooses this confrontation. He chooses confrontation. He goes to the synagogue. He waits till all the eyes are on him. He calls the man forward. Um, and then he, I mean, the setting, the stage setting is perfect. He calls the man forward. And then he says um, uh, to the haters, um, he asks them what I am arguing is the fundamental, fundamental uh uh, ethos, the fundamental heart of God. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? I mean, isn't that a perfect summation of what holiness is calling us to do? When you are on the holy day, are you supposed to do good or evil? <laughs> right? I mean, it doesn't get more basic than that. Um, and then he, he makes it, well, he does make it more basic. Uh, to save life or to kill. They were silent. Um, not, there's another interesting comparison there to look at the different, different places there's silence in the Gospel of Mark. There's another one I couldn't quite remember. I think it might have been with the disciples. But then the, the most obvious one is Jesus' silence before Pilate um, when he's being integrated. Integrated. Interrogated. Um, okay, so Jesus forces the issue. He asks, and uh, so this is like a summation of the law, right? The summation of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are for us to do good, to save life. Um, uh, and then they were silent. Uh, um, here, he looked at, out, around at them with anger. Anger is uh, perhaps better translated with rage. Um, we never, in all of the Gospels, see such an emotive description given to Jesus than right here. Um, this is really pinnacle um, uh, peak for Jesus. Okay, and then we get, uh, we, and then we get the great foreshadowing. The Pharisees went out immediately and conspired with the Herodians, namely the aristocratic class of uh, of uh, Galilee about to destroy him. The plot is hatched. Okay. So Jesus, uh, in response to this, retreats to the Sea of Galilee. Um, remember the Sea of Galilee, around the sea is where Jesus teaches and calls the disciples. Um, he literally calls Simon and Andrew and James and John and Levi, son of Alphaeus, in chapters one and two. Here in chapter three, he calls the 12, um, many of whom we never hear about again. It's a very simple, as, as is true throughout what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, so much of how Mark writes the Gospel is very symbolic. We have 12 disciples. Why? There are 12 tribes of Israel. Um, the actual characters don't really matter much to Mark other than that there was this um, symbolicness of it. Um, so he calls the 12 
and uh, he goes up to he goes up to the mountain to call the twelve. Then uh, he comes back, and then he goes back home. So here we are. He goes back home. The crowd. So remember, the crowd is our anonymous, nameless um, poor. They come together so they cannot eat. Um, uh, his family hears about it. They go out to restrain him. Restrain. I think I've got this. <clears throat> uh, restrain. It's kind of a, a, a like restrain is what they do when they arrest Jesus at the end. Um, so his family is also trying to restrain him. And I love this. It says, for people were saying, this is like the Twitter of um, first century Palestine. Um, the popular media, the common wisdom is that he's gone crazy. Um, I've got a lot of sympathy. Well, we're going to get to, we're going to get back to the family. Something that Mark does a lot, which is start a story, go off on a tangent, and then come back. So he's going to come back to the family. Um, but first, so this is another example of uh, what's called um, intertextual stitching. Mark introduces Jesus' parables. The whole next chapter, chapter 4, is all parables. But Mark likes to warm us up first. So there's just... Very short parables here. How can Satan cast out Satan? And so I, I love this kind of like rhetorical um, brilliance of Jesus. Um, oh, the scribes. The scribes are who call Jesus Beelzebub. Beelzebub is literally like the prince of darkness. That itself is an apocalyptic image. The apocalyptic imagery is what we're going to see all throughout chapter 4, which is like difficult. Chapter 4 is really hard, y'all, but, like, stick in there with it. Um, we have the beginning of the apocalyptic imagery. They call him the Prince of Darkness. The scribes come down for Jerusalem because they've heard of Jesus breaking all of these laws. They want to, uh, this is the institutional power recoiling. Um, not recoiling. Uh, uh, calling Jesus the Prince of Darkness would be similar to, like, calling someone a terrorist um, now or, like, in the 80s, a communist. Um, I think it's just a, a, a way of uh, what's the what's the term uh, assassination of character um, and Jesus says right everyone knows that I've been casting out demons why would a demon cast out demons <laughs> right I mean I, there's just in a way a kind of a rhetorical brilliance there but Mark is always writing symbolically right um, both giving us a realistic image in a lot of ways of Jesus' life in Palestine, but also pulling back to the larger images. If a kingdom is divided against itself, here, kingdom, we are to read, um, uh, there's, it's not a stretch to think that of the Davidic kingdom, right? Um, uh, namely, this kind of sense that the temple must survive in order for people to have holiness, which Jesus is going to reject. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. You're accusing me... I'm going to pull back. <clears throat> Jesus is essentially saying, you're accusing me of not having integrity, of not being a unified person with justice. Look at your own house. Look at your own kingdom. Your house will not be able to stand. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus going into the temple and chasing out um, uh, uh, those who are... Uh, using the temple for their own um, uh, economic and religious power. Um, oh, and then 
Yes, please, Sarah. So, I mean, could you also like read that as kind of foreshadowing, I guess, of like what Jesus does with the resurrection? Uh huh. Yes. Um, Yeah, um, yeah. And so he sort of like binds the strong man. Yes. Like what he does in the atonement. Great. Thank you for bringing up the strong man. So uh, the end of this is Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. So remember back to chapter one, the prologue. John saying, The one who comes after me is more powerful than I. So once again, we are talking about um, who has the true power. Is it Herod? Is it, the, is it the powers of domination? Or is it the way of God? And Jesus is going to say, you know, um, that obviously, uh, it's the way of God that has the true power. What I... Um, what I love about this is that the imagery here is um, Jesus as robber, <laughs> right? I mean, Jesus is giving a parable in which he himself is the rob Patty, yeah, go ahead. Oh, you're muted. Interrupt, want to interrupt your point, but when you get to the next section, yeah. I'm wondering about what is meant by the Holy Ghost. Yes! At that time. Okay, okay. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, but yeah, I just want to say, underline again, I, so a lot of what I'm doing here is trying to provide a, lar a larger context that isn't present on the page, but I think reading these parables whether you know what's going on with like the Palestinian gentry or not, Jesus is comparing himself to a robber. I just missed this in Sunday school growing up, you know? I, it's profoundly provocative, profoundly provocative to have the Messiah um, uh, as an analog to a robber. Um, but of course, something that Paul picks up and is central to... Mark might have gotten it from Paul, actually. Okay, here's a passage that literally from, like, day one, I remember being 12 and being racked by this. <laughs> I mean, just total... Ex I, didn't I didn't have this language, but, like, total existential dread here. Truly, I tell you, People will be forgiven their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Okay, here's what I like to do. Class, group. Let's use our principles about what it is that fundamentally motivates Jesus, what his, his, um, his guiding ethos um, the larger concept of justice or whatever that is, to think about this passage. Uh, um, 
And think about, of course, how we grew up hearing it, but then how we might pull it to this larger uh, uh, text that we've been looking at for Mark. <clears throat> Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemes they utter. <laughs> but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness. This is where we get to exegesis, eisegesis, at the very beginning about the uh, shepherd's hook, right? There's like a interpretation of this which seems awful. <laughs> um, seems totally counter to what I think about as like the um, fundamental mercy of God. So how, how do we, what, yeah, any thoughts? Yes, Jean Ann. Me too. Nope, hold on. I'm gonna try to unmute you. I always thought that to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit would be just to have total denial of the existence of the Holy Spirit. Okay. That. Uh, I, I I hear that. Thank you. Okay. okay. Any other uh, any other ideas? Well, yeah, Patty. So my difficulty is this: in Sunday school, I was taught something like what we just heard. So the Holy Spirit is some some entity who is one of the three parts of God who we don't really understand, but He's there or it's there, but I'm trying to go back and sort of ask, well, they didn't have, you know, all those early Christian conventions who decided that the Holy Spirit was such and such yet, so there's no right. such equation yet. Right. So when he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, uh, we have no idea what he means when he's talking to other Jews. <laughs> Unless you're Jewish yeah. and you study Torah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. that's one question, but then you're asking us another question. It's like, well, what do you think is his highest value? Or how do we use... So what I'm trying to say is, like, when we get to this, some of these difficult passages, we're yeah. like, what's going on here? What, <laughs> what I'm suggesting is that this text has a literary integrity. Has a literary integrity. When he, Jesus... Um, when Mark... Or when Jesus talks about sin in chapter 2 or talks about bread in chapter 3, that is related to the feeding story, that is related to the Last Supper, that he uses these images in an integral, um, consistent way. Yeah, Dwayne. Okay, well, I'm glad you mentioned the bread, because I've been wondering about that. So what is the bread of the presence to Jews and yeah. that only priests could have? Because is... And does it have anything to do with what Jesus did at the Last Supper and what our concept of, of bread for, for all now? Yeah. Thank you, Dwayne. I mean, um, I just want to uh, say uh, that it, it definitely makes me think of um, some religious traditions that have very elaborate rites for how to handle consecrated elements and the sense of like if you break those you're out <laughs> and mm -hmm. 
and um, surely the bread of the presence um, is is at least analogous to what we think of as consecrated bread, and yet Jesus is saying like, hey, if you're hungry, don't worry about the rules, you know? Um, it, yeah, David. Uh, hey, uh, I was just going to say that um, I was reading about this the other day, and somebody had a good explanation on this. Oh, cool. Um, it just, to me, it's just about, it, it's sort of a self-defining statement, and he's not really talking about what you say. Like, you can't go to hell for saying, I curse the Holy Spirit. That's it. You're done. Yes. Or, uh, goddamn, was what I was really afraid of, you know? Yeah. Like that, yeah, what he's really saying that's your ticket your to hell, heart. you know? Go ahead. It's your heart, and it's, it's the flip side of Roman, Romans 8.14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. It's basically what's in your heart. Yeah. Yeah, I like that, uh, David. And I think um, we're on to something. I'm just going to pull this passage up again. So, um, now, remember, I'll this... I'll put my hand down now. <laughs> okay. Um, this, uh, Jesus' response it is... Uh, flows directly from this confrontation from his family from the scribes from the um, religious establishment the socio-political establishment of his family trying to restrain him and Jesus I think here's, here's my gloss Jesus is saying you are trying to stop me from inaugurating the new kingdom of God which allows all people access to God. It does not exclude them based on purity or debt. Um, the outcasts are actually God's favorite children. And if you call me the prince of darkness, then you are stopping that fundamental will of God. And that is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. That's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. But still, that doesn't resolve, in my mind, this concept that if you do that, then you're out which still seems fundamentally against what I think about God, which is like, there's nothing we can do that permanently alienates us from God. Okay, are you guys, are you, like, I feel like we're getting close to something. So can you do that explanation again, only more slowly, because I kind of, <laughs> This is my eternal curse, my own blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is that I get excited. Um, okay. Don't, don't lose that spirit. So, so for, first I'm going to tell you what I think Jesus is saying, and then also this larger point about how we understand Scripture. First, what I think Jesus is saying is, these people are stop, trying to stop me from inaugurating this kingdom of true justice that's not based on money or privilege or um, religious nationalism, but is actually based on um, this larger principle that we will get to in just a second, that is, whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sister. That's how it ends. Um, whoever fulfills the basic Deuteronomic covenant with God, which is to do good and not evil, to save a life instead of kill, um, if you try to stop that kingdom, you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. I mean, I just think if you think about Mark as being a thing of integrity, then that's very clearly what Jesus is saying. These people are trying to stop me. I'm telling you that trying to stop me is you are going against the will of God. 
Okay, but now let's get to the second part, which is if you go against the will of God, you're out forever. There's no forgiveness. Okay. This is where, like, no one's going to explain this to you, but just look at the text. Who? Okay, in the first half, in the first half of Mark, who is it that is trying to stop Jesus? It's the Pharisees. It's the Herodians. Who is it in the second half of the Gospel of Mark that's trying to stop Jesus? His family. His family and the disciples. No. Right? It's Peter who pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. And Jesus gets back into this apocalyptic imagery and says, Satan, get behind me. There couldn't be a better example of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit than what Peter did. And yet, in the narrative, it is Peter for whom Jesus builds the church upon. So what I'm trying to say here is even Jesus does hyperbole, right? Um, uh, and you can see that in the text. You have people who do try to stop Jesus in, in just the way that he's trying to say, for whom not only is there forgiveness, but they go on to become um, great leaders of this Jesus movement. So this is the problem about taking one text in the Bible and extrapolating um, huge, huge consequences. You have to look at it holistically in order to make sense of just insane passages like this one. How does that land? At the same time, you have to be careful not to carve out and say, well, we don't like this passage, so we'll find a different way. But I came down in on what you said permanently, because obviously Peter and the family were not permanently banned abroad. Um, so the hyperbole together with diminishing permanently, that's for me. Yes, yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think if someone is going to want to hold on to that text, that if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you can never have forgiveness, then they're going to have a hell of a time explaining what Jesus does with Peter, who is just an absolute, and we'll get to this, Peter is an absolute rebellion against Jesus in chapter 8. Um, and it escalates from there, when they, the disciples completely abandoned Jesus. And yet, not only is there forgiveness, um, they are God's beloved, God's very beloved. Okay. Uh, we have just a few more minutes, and I want to get to the, uh, the uh, absolute crux. Then his mother and his brother... So this is the other side of the sandwich. Mark starts the story with his family coming to restrain Jesus. Then he does the parables um, uh, with his own kind of gloss about how serious it is to try to stop Jesus and Jesus' movement to reclaim, I'm going to say, the poor. And then we get back to the family. His mother and his brothers came. They're standing outside. Again, Mark writes symbolically. So Jesus is inside a house. His family are already separated from him on the outside. 
and they call to him and they ask for him and then some people say you're they're outside they're asking for you and jesus i love it you know you could definitely read this as a like a very um sophomoric who are my you know who are my brothers but um actually uh okay so who are my brother and my sisters looked around at him at the disciples and who are the disciples yes we have the 12 um uh okay let me see if uh, i'm not gonna do it um we've got the 12 but those sitting around him we are recalling imagery from chapter two when jesus is reclining with who tax collectors and sinners um jesus is looking around at these people tax collectors and sinners and says here are my mother and my brothers and then this is it in my mind in my mind this is the passage like memorize like anytime you come to a part of mark and you're trying to figure out what's going on here is the key whoever does the will of god is my mother and my sister and my brother not who's related to me not who is performing the sacrifices at the temple not the person who is clothed in the religious imagery of god it is whoever is actually doing the will of God. And we're going to get to, I mean, I think we've already seen it. What does Jesus do? He's healing people. He will eventually um, uh, give food to everyone who is hungry. Um, uh, so Jesus is going to more precisely define what it means to do the will of God. But it is none of the outside garment stuff. It is this fundamental commitment to the larger concept of the justice of and mercy and love of God. That is what defines us. And nothing else can get in the way of it. That concludes the lecture portion of today's podcast. If you'd like to hear some of the discussion between me and the class, please stay tuned for the second part of this week's podcast in the separate Q&A file. So thrilled that you've made it to the end. And I truly hope and pray that this series deepens and challenges your sense of who Jesus is and what Jesus is calling us to do. Peace.